Welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, it's a real pleasure to have John Thor Sigurdsson, who is somebody I saw speak at TEDx in Farnham last weekend. He is a corporate punk speaker, sales and marketing specialist helping startups, evangelist for the technology space, and generally an all-round good guy. John Thor. Would you mind just giving a quick introduction to who you are and a bit about your background? Because I know it's very varied and colorful. Absolutely. So first of all, Marcus, thank you so much for having me today. Pleasure to be on. So my background, as I said, is a bit varied. So I'm born in Iceland. And actually, my first sort of professional passion was in the theater. And I often say that I'm only where I am today because I absolutely hate gardening. And... uh, The reasoning behind that is really because my first summer job when I was about 13, 14 years old was in gardening. And I just, I couldn't stand it. It was mind numbing to me. And I got this message from a friend saying, hey, a local theater is having auditions. Do you want to join? And I went, sure, why not? And it was mostly just to get out of a day of gardening, to be honest. But I got in and it just lifted my confidence to new heights. Admittedly, it also made me a bit of a target for kids in my school. You know, it wasn't considered that cool to be in the theater at the time. But it made me realize that I needed to be on stage in terms of not just in terms of the value that I got from it, but it just I felt at home there. I felt like I could deliver a message. And throughout the next couple of years, I got involved in a lot more artistic ventures and I only realized recently, being on more of a business and entrepreneurial and corporate side of things, how much being a struggling artist taught me about being an entrepreneur. <laughs> and <Tell me> more. <laughs> so, for example, being a in fringe theater or being in extreme music in a small place like a frozen tundra of an Iceland of an island up in the North Atlantic Ocean means that. You probably don't have a lot of money, but you sure as hell want to do some marketing. So (laughs) you find all available sources of attention or ways to get yourself out there. And you have to be creative. So that's something that I took with me. But in the middle of all of that, I had a couple of, I guess, forays into different things. When I was 18, I started working in insurance sales. And sales was always something that intrigued me because due to my sort of debating nature at school. People used to say things like the terrible cliche of you could sell ice to an Eskimo. (laughs) Not that I want to be that swindler that would actually do that. But I remember thinking, maybe there's something to that. Maybe I should explore it and got a job alongside college selling insurance. And while I loved the sales aspect of it, I just hated selling insurance. Insurance did nothing for me from a passion point of view. (laughs) So I just went, you know what, this isn't really for me. I love the competitive nature of it, but insurance does nothing. And I could took a complete U-turn and started working with people with autism. So I started working mainly with young adults and teenagers, helping them with you know, overcoming some of the difficulties in their lives. I use things like music therapy. I learned sign language in order to help some of them. And I really just immersed myself in this arena where there were so many people that had given up, so many people that saw problems where I decided to see solutions. So I think those two things, the creative ventures and the caretaking, did more for my sales and sort of business career than my first sales job. Because all my first sales job really did was 
convinced me that I could do it because no offense to the managers I had there, but it wasn't exactly like they were the best of coaches. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, this is a really interesting and depressing fact. Um, (laughs) Only 6% of people in sales management roles are qualified to be sales managers. So that really doesn't surprise me. And really, I decided to try on the back of the caretaking. I thought, actually, let me get into the creative side full time. I went to film school. But the month I got into film school, my wife got into art university in England. So we decided to try out living in separate countries for a year. That sucked. (laughs) (laughs) So I moved over to England with. I'll admit, in hindsight, not a real plan. It was sort of, I'll find a job. I'll find somewhere to live. But I knew I I could hustle. I knew from my art days that no matter what, I'd find a way to make it work. And that attitude landed me a job in tech sales with a company called EIMS, working with some enterprise-level clients around the world. And to begin with, I wasn't quite sure where I'd fit into that corporate structure just due to my background and due to the fact that I know listeners won't see this, but I've got a couple of piercings. I've got some tattoos. But at the same time, I love a good suit. I love wearing like a waistcoat and a pocket watch. I'm very much a fancy kind of guy. You are very dapper. Yeah. <laughs> so I came in there not quite knowing what to expect. But the moment I decided to let all of that retinence go and really go full on into being myself in the way that I presented, in the way that I pitched, in the way that I spoke to people, I saw that my career trajectory just went off the rails in a good way. I mean, it took off. I started working in different offices for them. I lived in the States for a while, in Spain for a while, working for some of their biggest clients and ended up managing sort of the whole sales operations of their headquarters in the UK. But then hit a bit of a wall in terms of I felt like I'd done everything I wanted to do within that company. And I was continuously getting sort of approached on LinkedIn by entrepreneurs and startups that needed similar assistance that we were giving to global enterprises, but they didn't really know where to look. So I decided after helping out one of them in my spare time to take the leap, go out on my own. And that's really where I am now. That's only a few months ago. So I'm still sort of finding my niche in a way, but I'm really enjoying having all these different conversations and projects with small businesses, startups, and as you said, Pixie's Edge, who are a startup accelerator that I met at Tech Event in London and started working with them and their startups. And it's just been an incredible ride so far. Tell me this. I mean, your talk, Ted, was fuck money. So for someone who is a essentially teaching salespeople, isn't that slightly hypocritical? It's a great question and one that I truly expected to get at the talk. But the fact of the matter is, the name might be a bit of a red herring when it comes to the overall topic because really the message behind it, demonetization of basic necessities, the idea that money shouldn't trump human rights, it was really inspired by from the same place as I'm inspired to help salespeople, which is too often in life, we just ask shitty questions. Couldn't agree more. And I feel like so many salespeople that I've helped throughout the years, they've had the right intention. 
but just terrible questions, terrible training. And they haven't really been taught how to ask the right questions. And in life, we do the same. We ask ourselves, what job do I want to have? What do you want to be when you grow up? We don't ask about the impact we want to have. We don't ask about what life we want to have. We don't ask why. So what impact do you want to have? So I aspire to inspire. And what I want to inspire is change. In the world, I want to inspire change for the betterment. I want to inspire the idea that even if times are tough, that people don't need to have that money in order to survive. Like I said in my talk, I think it's crazy that, for example, in the UK, that there are 8.4 million people struggling to put food on the table, not because we don't have the food, but because we'd rather throw it away than give it to them. And I want to inspire the change within people to focus on what they want to do and really be more aware because I find so many people just live their lives on autopilot. And when I hear people say things like, oh man, 20 years just disappeared. When you turn 30, things just go so fast. When you turn 40, this happens. I genuinely think time disappears from people because they're not paying attention. They're not asking themselves questions anymore. They're just answering them. Okay, I'd like to pick up on two points. First of all, John Ford's point about the 8.4 million people. What was the amount of wasted food? Was it 19 billion tons? 1.9 billion tons. 1.9 billion tons. That equates to 265 tons per person who is struggling to feed themselves in yep. this country every year. So while it may sound like an idealistic concept, he makes a bloody good point. I mean, what are we doing wasting 265 tons per person when these people cannot feed themselves? So I have to say, hats off to you for bringing that to my attention. I did the calculation while you were speaking, and it really drove the message home. Now, the other point is, remind me what you just said, because I had um, I had time <laughs> passing fast. Yeah. That's, that's what happens when you get old. I'm constantly asking myself questions, so I have to challenge you on that. Because my life moves at a fucking pace of knots that you wouldn't believe. I even went and found a hypnotherapist to help me slow down my perception of time. And I'm paying attention constantly. So I have to dispute that fact because my life is just fantastic. I'm grateful for every moment. I can't wait for Monday to start. The weekends whiz by too quickly. So what the hell can some old codger like I do if it's not about not paying attention? Because I'm paying attention constantly. Well, I guess to revise what I said slightly then, I mostly mean people that don't just feel like it goes by quickly, but that it just goes by. So Ah. for you, you're saying that you're super aware, but that probably means that you're having tons of fun. And when you look back at the last couple of years, you have a ton of memories. I'll give you an example from my caretaking days. I was working with people there that In my second or third week there, a woman was handed a bouquet of flowers for working there for 30 years. And she said things like, oh, you know, it feels like it's been so such a short time. And she could barely almost reminisce about those three decades. She had a handful of memories, but mainly it just seemed that it was a passage of time rather than a life well lived. And even though... It's an existence. Exactly. And I think, that time speeds up, that's just a factor of relativity. When you're six years old, an hour is a much bigger proportion of the time you've lived relative to your age than it is when you're 50, 60, or even 20. 
So I think the perception of the passage is not something questions can necessarily alter as much as our perception of how that time has gone by. It's interesting. I've got a very elderly mother and she's bedbound. And her day is basically moving from her bed to her chair, back to her bed. And she's very forgetful. And I think part of that is down to lack of association. Everything seems to be just linear. And because she's not engaging with her life, and it's very difficult for her to do that, then she's bored. And so the days seem to drag, but then it's the end of the week already. And so she loses track. Yesterday, she asked me whether it was Saturday. And she just completely lost track of where she is and her place in life. And I think what you're, meant, what you're describing there is quite common with people who are able-bodied and in work, where they spend 40, 50, 60 hours a day doing something they hate in order they can obliterate themselves at the weekend. And that, I feel, is terribly sad. So I'd like to build on your message from your talk. You were inspired by Jean-Luc Picard, I seem to remember. Yes. Uh, tell us about that. So for those that seen the talk, and I imagine that's most people saying it's not on YouTube yet. But effectively, I mentioned near the end of the speech that in Star Trek First Contact, which came out in 1996, so I must have seen it probably about a year or two later when I was seven or eight years old. I was born in 1990. That's depressing. Um, <laughs> and so I remember watching that, and there was this one scene that just stuck with me, which was when the crew of the Enterprise has traveled back from the 24th to the 21st century. And someone asks Jean-Luc Picard why the, the crew doesn't have any money. And Picard just answers, well, in the future, the acquisition of wealth is no longer the primary objective of life, but rather we work to better ourselves and the rest of humanity. And now in later years, it makes me question why he only focused on humanity. Surely Vulcans are also trying to improve themselves, but that's kind of besides the point. Um, but the thing that stuck with me was this idea of humanity being focused on bettering itself and not acquiring money because it wasn't like the enterprise was poorly equipped. It wasn't like it was a garbage heap running on nothing. It was a very well-equipped fleet in the grand scheme of things. And the idea that we could one day have a future that didn't rely on people working, like you said, 40, 50, 60 hours of, week, of the week doing something soul-crushing just to make sure they don't starve. That felt like a pretty damn good future to me. And it's crazy to think about sometimes how there are so many things from Star Trek that people are trying to emulate in technology, but we haven't taken as many things that we want to emulate as a society because Gene Rottenberry was so ahead of his time with things like being the first TV series to feature interracial relationships, as an example. Yeah. This raises some interesting questions in terms of societal values and also the question of the generation gap. I see people like Greta Thornburg coming up and the incredible inspiration she generates but also the divisiveness that's created by a child effectively saying enough is enough and the entrenched corporate forces and institutions and government looking at her as a threat instead of seeing the opportunity that uh, she represents. So your generation, her generation, I think how the leaders from your generations 
going to break through when you're facing so much resistance from the installed base? Well, I think it's a great question. And I think questions do seem to be the, uh, the genesis here of our focus. But I think what she did so powerfully is that her vested interest is in her future and her life. At no point does she come across and say, I am part of this organization or I'm part of this or that. So it's hard for corporations to just say, no, we're against this little Swedish girl that's just afraid of her future. It's very hard to speak against something like that. But I think my problem with the way that things like this have been handled and why it's so divisive is sort of similar to the point I touched upon about AI in my talk where we look at something like climate change or something like AI, and we keep worrying about things like, oh, how will we react when this happens? Oh, no, we're going to have billions of people lose their jobs. But we don't ask, how can we build a world where that's not a problem? Or with climate change, we're asking, how do we prepare ourselves for floods or the melting of the polar ice caps? We're preparing ourselves for disaster, but not enough people are asking truly what the big impact we can make is. And what I mean is, again, similar to what I referenced in the talk, where people are talking about such small incremental changes like cycling rather than driving, using less plastic, which is all good stuff. But fossil fuel producers are making so much more of an impact with their global emission. So the question is really, and I might be going off on a tangent here, so you might need to rectify me there, but it's a question of really where can we make the most impact, not just what can I impact in my own life? Because there was a great infographic in the US that showed after um, Donald Trump became president, it showed effectively the amount of people who didn't vote and showed that the majority of people that they polled said that they didn't vote because they didn't think their vote made a difference. But if everyone that didn't vote would have gone to vote, it could have changed everything because there were about as many people that didn't vote but were registered to as those who did. Absolutely. We see this here as well. The marginal voters and the non-voters are the ones who really have the power, but it's squandered because they feel disempowered and disenfranchised. And you touched on another really interesting point. I read a few years ago about how traditional Chinese doctors get paid. They get paid when you're well, and when you're sick, they have to pay for your medicines. So the compensation drives their behavior because their focus is on prevention rather than cause. And I know when we were prepping for this, we were talking about money as a motivator. And I don't know if you've ever read Alfie Cohn's book, Punished by Rewards. No, I haven't. It's a fascinating book. And actually, when you see how compensation schemes work, how the drug companies are incentivized to not focus on prevention, but on cause, on cure, and how the fossil fuel companies are focused on extraction rather than alternative energy, it strikes me that we are definitely not asking the right questions. And so what are the critical questions that, from your point of view, that as a society, we need to be asking? So first of all, just to give another example of a terrible question that I saw asked, about a year and a half ago, I saw a report from Goldman Sachs where 
they asked the question, is curing patients a sustainable business model? If that isn't one of the most immoral questions I've ever heard asked by a big corporations, I don't know what is. Because that is, in essence, I think, the best embodiment of why my talk was titled Fuck Money, Live Better. Because if we're asking ourselves, should we cure people? Because if we cure them, we can't extract more money from them. Then we're heading down a bad route as a society, as a species, really. I'm so surprised that Goldman Sachs would ask a question like that. It's so out of character. It's interesting, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) But in my opinion, some of the questions that we need to ask ourselves is, for example, the first question I asked in my talk, why do we allow money to stop ourselves from fixing things? Because at the end of the day, money isn't nature. Money isn't a force that we struggle to comprehend or deal with. Money is something that we created. We created the idea of the economy. We created this whole thing. And I realized that it's sort of gotten a bit out of our control because it is, for most people, something that is inflicted upon us and we're part of rather than a system that we are the puppet masters of. But the first step is just questioning that. Why is this the case? With 92% of money existing only as numbers in computers and such a big percentage of wealth in the world effectively coming from how confident people are about companies on the stock market. Because one of my favorite examples is Tesla. Tesla has struggled with Elon Musk's, I guess, penchant for speaking out of turn, if you will. (laughs) And, And the thing is, nothing has changed about their products during the rants that Elon Musk has gone on. And I mean, they haven't lowered in quality. Nothing terrible has changed about the way they make cars. But when Elon Musk called that cave diver a pedo, yeah. stock spell. when Elon Musk told a reporter that he didn't want stupid questions, their stock went down. And on the flip side of things, when Pokemon Go was thing in the world, Nintendo's shares went up, despite the fact that Nintendo had nothing to do with the game except being related to Pokemon in a way. So... I think the ideas that we give ourselves about wealth being this measure of success or measure of wealth, it is, in so many ways, quite delusional. Have you ever seen Laurie Santos's talk on TED called A Monkey Economy is Irrational as Ours? Yeah. Fascinating. For most of you who haven't, it's well worth a watch. Essentially, they train bonobo monkeys to trade tokens, cash, for grapes. And their behavior was almost identical to the way stock market traders behaved prior to the crash of 2008. And we forget that we're higher primates who are driven by emotion and programming. And we forget also that our perception is largely colored by our programming, our childhood, and where we grew up, the values. And so, one thing I'd really like to explore. You've lived internationally, you've worked internationally. Absolutely. What do you see in terms of differences about the questions that people ask from different cultures? How do you see those vary? So I see those vary massively based on certain elements of the culture, mostly being how bought in people are to 
for lack of a better term, jingoistic ideas. So living in the United States, for example, I've never heard as much self-celebration as I did with some of the people there. And what I mean is living anywhere else in the world, and you're bound to hear people joke around about things like, oh, you know, America, home of the free, land of the brave. But the amount of people I heard say that, like, unironically, just after witnessing a presentation in Black History Month about, like, <laughs> about illegal experimentation of vaccines on black kids or about slavery, and people go, yeah, land of the free, best country in the world. <laughs> <laughs> I was listening to an interview with Lise Doucette, yeah. who is the BBC's foreign correspondent. And she's basically spent the last 30 years in war zones. And she talks about the kindness of strangers, but also when people are in those really traumatic times, what they really want is to have a voice. They want to be heard. And the way she does that is by being genuinely empathic without being patronizing. And she asks questions that enable them to find that voice. And what I don't see a lot of is within the corporate world, I just don't see people asking insightful questions. I don't see people asking insightful questions of their politicians, of executives in large corporations. Why don't we do more? Well, I think people are afraid of the answers as well. People are afraid of changing the status quo because if you think about it, the way that we are controlled with money is simple Pavlovian conditioning. If you look at Pavlov or Skinner, and now I'm, I'm showcasing the fact that I studied psychology in college. Well done. Uh, not <laughs> just art history. So, you know, <laughs> part of the degree is coming in handy at some point. Finally, uh, all yeah. that money that was wasted. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, unless like if the latter part of this is about like Dadaist, surreal or abstract art in the late early 20th century, I'm golden. <laughs> <laughs> On the conditioning front, if you look at some of the studies that Pavlov and Skinner did, one of the most powerful molders of behavior is negative reinforcement. And for those that are not familiar with the idea of negative reinforcement, it is effectively to not reward you, but to remove negative stimulant if you fulfill a specific goal. So as an example, if you earn enough money, you do not become homeless. If you earn enough money, you get to eat. Because 90% of people that are working a typical nine to five, they don't live like kings. They're not working and managing to save a ton of money or managing to go on extravagant holidays. It is very much having worked with, for example, sales teams, so many people live their lives with a scarcity mindset and they, similar to what you said in terms of you can't wait till Monday comes, but also you enjoy the weekend. These are people that very often cannot wait for the day that commission gets paid so that they can go out and just drink it all away. And these are people that are genuinely worried about the idea that if they run out of money too soon, this will happen, that will happen. So rather than aiming to reward themselves, they are effectively earning money in order to just keep their head above water. And for me, that is negative reinforcement all the way. So what I see in sales organizations is a huge emphasis 
on short-term objectives. Now, we're in a globalized economy, and we're up against Chinese companies who have 100-year plans. Shining example of this was at the end of the Korean War, the American negotiation team for the treaty rented three floors of the Hilton for three months. The Chinese contingent rented a five-bedroom house for three years. Now, who was going to win when it came to that negotiation? Because water always beats rock. It's the patient side that will win. I think at the moment we're suffering from a culture that is all about instant gratification. When I talk to salespeople and they tell me that they're motivated by money, I always question it because I don't believe that for a second. I think there are a few incredibly shallow people who are genuinely motivated by money. But those people who say that they're motivated by money, like you said, are motivated to get away from scarcity. But I think also they're seduced by the trappings. And I know you had an interesting parallel there, saying they were like they wanted to be contestants on American Idol. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit more about your experience with that. Yeah, so uh, effectively, it's sort of inspired by a talk I did on a corporate stage once called Entrepreneur or American Idol. And I touched upon this in a LinkedIn video once as well. And basically, the idea came from having interviewed a lot of people for sales roles or for leadership roles when working within my previous company, EIMS. And a really common thing that came up was people saying, their long-term goal was almost always, and I don't know if this was to impress the interviewers, but they always talked about wanting to you know, be entrepreneurs, be business owners, run their own thing, be their own boss. And when you asked for their reasoning, it was always quite shallow. And it, was, it always just reminded me of people that show up to American Idol auditions saying, all I've ever wanted to be in life, all I've ever dreamed of is being a musician. And I'm sitting there going, well, be a musician then. Because at the end of the day, it's not hard. Play something. You're a musician. Like, congrats, you bought an acoustic guitar. But being a good musician, on the other hand, is slightly harder. Absolutely. Just like anyone can be an entrepreneur, not everyone can be a successful one. (laughs) Um, But at the end of the day, these people that go on to American Idol, they don't want to be musicians. And they, more often than not, aren't musicians. They want to be stars. They want to be famous and they want other people to write them material that will get them the love and adoration of teens worldwide. And that makes them actually sound super creepy when I say that they're just looking for the love and adoration of teens. So I'll I'll rephrase that and say love, adoration, and money of teens worldwide. But in reality, people that want to be musicians, and I guess this sort of brings us full circle back to the beginning. When I've been in bands or when I've been in the theater and I still play music. I I haven't really allowed myself to have this pipe dream of being a rock star playing Wembley Stadium. And the reason for it, quite simply, because I love playing music that's very unpopular. (laughs) 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 Because the type of music I'm super into is never going to fill a stadium. And the great thing about that is it keeps it honest. It keeps it down to earth. And that's not the reason I'm necessarily drawn to it, but I'm realistic. I'm never going to make my money off of playing math core or like extreme metal, but I love doing it. So rather than change my focus to something I'm not passionate about in order to make myself a star musician, I've found that 
my feeling of purpose and my sense of success within business is within a couple of arenas where I genuinely can make money off of it, where I can make that impact that I seek to make. So for me, the difference between true entrepreneur and the American Idol is that my reasoning for working on my own was I could have continued working with some of these global companies, but I loved the idea of going into small companies that are struggling. I often call them, you know, you meet nerds with good ideas that have Mm -hmm. no idea how to get their ideas in front of the right people. If I can come in there and change their lives by helping them bring their ideas to the right people and helping those right people change their lives by being bettered by that idea, that's worth more to me than being an American Idol. I'd like to pick up on a point. I'm guessing a lot of the people that you're interviewing were relatively young. Yeah. Okay. I'm seeing something similar but different the other end of the extreme Mm. because a lot of the people are more my age that I deal with and when they're setting up their own businesses and they're corporate refugees and what they're getting away from is terrible bosses and getting away from the soul-crushing environment of a corporate culture, of politics. And they've had an idea. They're good technicians. But likewise, they also struggle to get their message out. They struggle to get in front of the right people. And invariably, it keeps coming back to this central theme, which is that they're not asking the right questions. They start from a selfish perspective. And again, the people you're interviewing, it was selfish. They were trying to get their emotional need for recognition met. And equally, business owners too often are focused on talking about their ugly kit, their product, their service whatever it is that they're offering. And because they come from a position of need rather than want, because they come from a position where they are so fixated on this thing that they are emotionally attached to, their product or their idea, that they forget. And one of my old friends, sadly he passed away a few years ago, Jerry Lemberg, used to describe entrepreneurs as people who created elegant solutions to problems that don't exist. (laughs) And what fascinates me is how people can keep beating their head against the wall so often and so painfully without recognizing that what they're doing isn't working. So, again, you must see this in your work. What are the questions you're getting people to ask themselves, simple questions, that help them to rip the scales from their eyes and say, oh, that's not working? So one of the simplest, most effective ways that I've found is I ask people two questions. What are you running away from and what are you running towards? And the reasoning behind this is actually quite personal. And I don't mean that in a way where I say it's quite personal, so I'm not going to discuss it now. But rather, it didn't come from a place of business. I was once doing a presentation for a room full of people looking to start a career in technology. And I was asked to present to these people some tips on how to get into the industry, why potentially not to get into the industry, etc. So it, it was a presentation effectively for kids coming out of university. And I touched upon the whole sort of Simon Sinek start with why mentality of, you know, figure out why you want to do this. And this person asked me, why, what's your why? What drives you? And without missing a beat, my answer was my crippling fear of insignificance. (laughs) (laughs) 
you can imagine a room full of university students being quiet and awkward when this guy standing in front of them who's been cracking jokes and you know playing around with all this for the whole day suddenly just drops a massive truth bomb on their heads. <laughs> but as much as it shocked them, it shocked me. I'd never said that out loud before. And it made me realize that I didn't want to live my life running away from insignificance, but rather towards significance. But in order to run towards significance, I had to figure out what my significance was. Because running away from insignificance, I didn't really need to... I didn't need to validate that insignificance. I didn't need to define it any more than that's a feeling I need to get away from. It's like a villain in a scary movie. But in order to run towards something, you need a destination. And that was a destination that for years I wasn't ready to have because I was running away from unresolved things from childhood. I was running away from questions that I'd been dreading to ask myself. And for example, in your example of the business owner running away from the soul-crushing nature of corporate life, they ask themselves, how can I get away from this? They don't ask, how can I change this or how can I make it better? And quite often, you see people run away from corporate nightmares to create a corporate nightmare of their own. Have you read Loon Shots by Safi Bakal? I have not. Okay. In the theme of the book is that Loon Shots are these crazy ideas that change the world. And you had uh, places like Park, the innovation team in Apple, and various others that effectively came up with these fantastic world-changing concepts. And they had to be kept separate from the franchise operation. The franchise operation is when a company hits an inflection point. And instead of encouraging crazy good ideas, now behooves people to shoot them down, play it safe. And I think very often what you find is that because people have run away from their previous horrific environment, what they tend to do was what they do what was done to them. And you see this in management. That's why the sales management are the most undertrained people on the planet, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Because what they do was what was done to them. So they end up being a reasonably decent salesperson. And then there's a vacancy and they get promoted into it with no management training, no idea that the skill set is massively different. So I'm putting forward one of my clients for the sales manager of the year for the BESMA Awards, the British Excellence in Sales Management Awards. And what's really fascinating about Keith is that he's not a great salesman, but even by his own admission, but wow, what a manager. He puts in place good processes. He has a clear vision. He's got clear direction. He's always clear about what he expects from his people. He empowers them. He coaches them. He holds them to account, and everybody knows exactly what is expected of them. And as a result, he's turned around an ailing sales operation and turned it into something that is something he can be incredibly proud of. But his humility is also there, because when I told him I was going to nominate him, he said, it's not me, it's the team. Now, this isn't humble bragging. It's genuinely instilled in him, because what he has is a real sense of service. And I think that has been lost. And you look at our politicians. When you became a public servant, you went into service to serve the public. Nowadays, what you have are career politicians. 
who operate in line with party politics and the win. And they're more concerned about their 30-year career in Parliament than they are about serving the public, which is why we have this shitstorm in the UK at the moment. And you see it over in the US and you're seeing it all over Europe. And the problem, I think, is that we've forgotten what service means. Service does not mean servitude. Service is intrinsic within human beings because we are social primates. We derive enormous satisfaction from helping other people, from giving to others, for bettering others. And I think this is one of the reasons why your talk really resonated with me, because this is a, a central theme and philosophy to everything that I do, which is that I believe we were put on the planet to help others get their needs met. And in turn, we get our needs met. So I'm curious in terms of what you're teaching your clients around service. So I definitely 100% agree in terms of that service. And I feel the problem that a lot of, I guess, sales managers put into post has been, what I've seen at least, is like you said, it's either simply someone who is a good salesperson put in there and expected to just share their wisdom and they expect that to be enough. but. One of the best analogies I've seen in terms of salespeople, and one of the things that I bring into training has been the thermometer versus thermostat analogy, which is, are you temperature checking your team and reporting on that, or are you truly affecting it? And it's amazing to me how often I've met with people like sales directors or VPs of sales, and I ask them, okay, how often are your sales managers doing deal reviews with your teams? And the blank expression that I sometimes get tells me more than a thousand words because they realize that their sales managers have not really been inquiring about. They've asked, oh, where's this deal? And their salesperson might say, oh, it's definitely coming in. But they don't challenge it. They don't ask questions around it. And I'll give you a really good example of this. Yeah. I sat in on a prospect sales meeting, sales manager and salespeople, and one of the salespeople said, uh, the deal slipped again. And the manager said, that's nine months in a row, isn't it? Yeah, but they're really excited. That's why I'll definitely land this month. And he didn't question it. And needless yes. to say, the sales manager was fired a couple of weeks later. That then comes back to the sales manager's manager doing their Absolutely. job well. Absolutely. It's a failing that has gone up the chain because I was lucky enough that when I went into sales management, A, the person who trained me in the very beginning was excellent in terms of training. He really went down into the nitty gritty and he made sure that things were there. And one of the ways that he truly believes is that you train people a lot better by asking them questions than by telling them the answers. Absolutely. Well, coach. Yeah, exactly. And when I've met other people who have gone through a similar career journey within sales that I have, Almost all of them, if they got any training in the beginning of it, they got like a classroom teaching session where they were supposed to take notes. They maybe did a written test, but they didn't really actively participate. So as an example to what you said in terms of the deal slipped again, it's the classic thing of claiming that a deal has slipped or you've lost a deal when you never had it in the first place. Absolutely. People have these rose-colored glasses that make all red flags look like normal flags. And they just look at these deals thinking they're definitely going to come in because of good rapport or because... Like us. Yeah, yeah. 
And I ran a hardware sales team for a printing manufacturer once where one of the guys on the team had this tendency that if I sat down and I said, okay, so what's the likelihood of this deal? Or what's going on with this deal? The question like that would always become something like, oh, you know, we've got such a good relationship. They're definitely going to buy. And if I then asked a simple question like, okay, uh, who else is involved? He would say, oh, this, this, and this. Okay, how much have you spoken to those people? Oh, I haven't, but he told me they're definitely on board. <sighs> or if I'd ask, Happy what is. could stop this from... Yeah. And, or I'd ask, oh, what could stop this from happening? Oh, nothing. It's definitely going ahead. And I went, okay, let's, let's imagine it won't. Why will that be? And I just, I can't believe how often I meet sales managers that have literally never asked these sorts of questions, never asked a deeper question than how's it going or when will it come in? Absolutely. It's dumbfounding because I always had a list of questions that my guys would have to answer in every single one. And if they couldn't answer it, more often than not, what that meant was I went, okay, we'll pause this, call them now, and try to get the answers to these couple of questions. And if they weren't sure how, that was a great reason for a coaching session. Let's go over what kind of questions you can ask to fill these blanks. And so many people just fail on this completely. But again, like you said, it's because they haven't been trained on it. No one's ever told them to. And most likely, when they were that good salesperson that got promoted, their manager probably never asked them these questions either. Absolutely. Man hands on misery to man. It deepens like a coastal shelf. Uh, Absolutely. Okay. There is another topic I'd like to discuss with you. I, I know that you're an evangelist for technology. And what I'm really curious about is the future of technology and human beings. There's a lot of talk about the singularity and all this kind of stuff where technology will take over the world and we'll just become cattle or destroyed by it. But I prefer to take a more optimistic view. So what are the questions we should be asking in order to ensure that human beings use technology to enable us to become better? So... First of all, I definitely agree with the optimistic approach. That's why I call myself a tech evangelist, not a tech doomsday prophet. Even though tech doomsday prophet has a hell of a ring to it. You get no talks. <laughs> yeah. yeah, just standing up there dressed Amish and going, we need to destroy the blockchain. <laughs> <laughs> I would say that it actually leads very well back to what you just said about servitude. Just like money, we created technology. and as long as we maintain that mindset of servitude, of being mindful that we've created this, then technology will serve us, not the other way around. And in my role as a tech evangelist, one thing that I've seen a lot, because I mentioned blockchain, is that people forget servitude as soon as a trendy product comes to market. Right now, everyone and their grandmother is looking to cash in on the blockchain trend but so often they forget who they're serving or how. And one of my favorite examples is I went to London Tech Week about three weeks ago, four weeks ago maybe, and I met this blockchain company who said that they were using blockchain and a stable cryptocurrency in order to enable people in Southeast Asia where a lot of people don't have bank accounts to buy mobile games and do microtransactions in mobile games. And I asked him a few questions around it. And I eventually got to the point where I asked him, 
I hope I don't, don't come across rude, but you do realize you've missed the biggest use case for your technology. And he looked a bit confused. So I said, look, you're saying that there's these tons of people who are unable to buy mobile games or enact in microtransactions because they don't have bank accounts. He said, yes. And I said, and you've given them a currency specifically for that. He said, yes. What other things are these people locked out of because they don't have a bank account that you could enable them to do, which might serve their life a little bit more than a mobile game? And the guy was stumped. He went, we've never thought about that. That could be a really good idea. He said, because... I haven't seen anyone do that yet, so if you hurry. <laughs> Interestingly, in Kenya, the majority of transactions in the marketplace are done over the mobile phone using mobile payments. Absolutely. And if you could enable that with a stable currency that isn't run by a government, which in many of these places, let's be honest, the government isn't exactly the most trustworthy. Yeah. We're in places where these sorts of things happen. So I think. That's just one example of many, but we often get distracted by the you know, shiny lights and digits of technology, and we forget that the original idea for our technology was to make our lives better or easier. And I think we need to continuously ask ourselves the questions of who is this serving and how? How can we make it better? But also keep a quote that I know has apparently been disputed whether or not comes from Henry Ford, but the idea remains, if I would have asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. Yeah. (laughs) And when it comes to things like AI, I guess to bring that back, we worry about AI putting us out of jobs, making people unemployed, starving, homeless. But what if we look at the future that Jean-Luc Picard talked about in Star Trek? What if all of our food manufacturing, all of our water purification, all of our buildings, all of it's built, made, and refined by machines. If we're not paying anyone to do all those things for us, can we have access to those resources for free? Does that mean that effectively we will have freed ourselves up to focus on more innovation, more philanthropy, more space exploration even? If we free up human time, which is one of the resources that we cannot give back to anyone, if we free up that human time, what can we achieve rather than slaving away in fields or in factories, making things we need to survive? Very interesting. I mean, a thought just struck me. There's a lot of talk about the singularity as a result of AI, but I think we've already hit the financial singularity. When you think about the number of people whose livelihoods have been destroyed by the financial system and the control that the financial system has over humanity, the risk of sounding mildly socialist here, I think that is a much greater threat. Absolutely, there needs to be debates and there need to be safeguards because tech can be used for good or bad. But it keeps coming back down to the intent. You look at people like Muhammad Yunus, who's created the whole concept of micropayments and microloans. What a fantastic idea. Why are we not taking more of those fabulous, elevating ideas and making them more mainstream and instead subverting those or suppressing them in favor of ideas that favor only a few? Well, that's an excellent question to ask. And one of the questions that I think 
people need to ask themselves more often. Why do most of our innovations get sidetracked to favor only a select few, the elite, rather than the majority? And it's one of those things where I remember being getting so disheartened when I started thinking about a few years ago how many problems in the world are sustained simply because there's money to be had in sustaining those problems. As an example, if you look at the military industry, I guess, if you want, in the US, if world peace were achieved and we had no use for bombs, guns, or military, how much money would be lost? How many billionaires would start losing out? If there were... Well, there aren't that many billionaires, aren't there? Well, (laughs) but I'm sure most of them have a stake to claim in the military establishment one way or another. Well, many worlds, yeah. I mean, it's a, very, it's a very fair question. And I'm struggling a little bit because I think by nature, we're very conservative as a species. One of my favorite quotes is Woodrow Wilson, if you want to make enemies, recommend change. I think what we tend to do is we stay with what, we tend to look for what feels familiar, even if it's not good for us. And even if we know it's intrinsically bad, we stick with it. And I'm just wondering whether or not that's something that we need to address at a primary education level, teaching children to ask better questions and implement that at a much younger age, because there are things that just don't happen in schools. They're not generally taught how to ask fantastic questions. I remember I had a teacher, Dr. McLaughlin, and I would still remember this one class where we were, it was in a general studies class, which was basically the sort of DOS-off type of uh, class. But he had us debate nuclear disarmament. And one side played the Russians, one side played the Americans, and then we had to swap roles. And it's had a profound impact on me because it forced me to think for the first time in my entire educational career about big questions. And I found that such a valuable lesson. And it's lived with me for the last 35, 40 years. So nearly 40 years. And it's been incredibly powerful. And I think there are pockets in education where I can't remember the lady's name. She was a teacher in the States just after Martin Luther King was assassinated. And she ran an experiment where she told all the children in the class that children with brown eyes were inferior and children with blue eyes were superior. And their behavior changed immediately. And then the following day she said, oh, I'm so sorry, I got that wrong. Children with brown eyes are superior and children with blue eyes. And what's really interesting is 30 years later when they tested levels of intrinsic racism within that particular class, they were so substantially lower, even 30 years later, from those two days in their primary education. So I think that's an area that we should definitely explore. Definitely. And funnily enough, it's actually something that I'm trying to focus a bit on because the talk that I mentioned earlier, which I refer to as Aspire to Inspire, where I sort of use my story to frame a narrative around how we need to ask ourselves different questions in order to get to where we want to be and how we need to focus on the towards mindset rather than away, even though it's challenging. It's something that I'm looking to take to schools. So I've actually, I've been reaching out to schools, especially after Ted sort of gave me this platform from which I feel like I can build a bit of momentum because public speaking has been a passion of mine for a long time. but Now, having this, again, platform and this momentum to be able to reach a different level of people, 
I really want to use that in order to shape some young lives. So as much as I've enjoyed talking in front of corporations and will welcome any opportunity to do that, I'm really looking forward to potentially being able to do that in front of schools. I've actually booked a speaking engagement at um, Bournemouth University in October, speaking to some of the graduating students about the questioning techniques from salespeople into their lives. Excellent. I did a lot of work with universities uh, a few years back. And what's really interesting is teaching them how to ask questions. The people that I train there, because I worked with their graduate enterprise scheme, and a load of them have gone on to fantastic careers. One of them uh, now is a, an angel investor in a number of companies. And in fact, by the time he left university, he'd managed to build up a practice of six dental practices. Wow. And within three years of leaving university, he was a multimillionaire, had a global lifestyle, had all the trappings. But again, very humble and had an opportunity to impact the lives of others because he was asking good questions. And yeah. it's really fascinating. Also, he worked very hard. So, I'll yeah. give <laughs> so John Ford, this has been a really fascinating conversation. I would love to do another interview with you where we discuss purely focus on questions and really start to think about some deep and uncomfortable, challenging, insightful questions that will get the audience really riled up and hopefully create some constructive conflict. So, John Thor, thank you very much. How can people get hold of you? So, people can get a hold of me either through, well, LinkedIn. I have a website, john-thor.com. It is sort of semi-under construction. It is live, but you'll see it transform before your very eyes. (laughs) And and, um, if someone doesn't want to use either one of those, my email is quite simple. It's john at john-thor.com. Brilliant. John Thor Sigurdsson, Sigurdsson, sorry. Um, (laughs) Thank you very much for being my guest today. Fascinating conversation and wishing you the very best of luck with your new venture. Thank you so much. And uh, looking forward to speaking to you next time. Thank you. So this is Marcus Kauke from the Inquisitor podcast signing off. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please comment, like, share, and get in touch with either myself or John Thor. Feel free to argue the point. If you don't agree with anything that we've said, throw your questions our way. We'll be very happy to interact. And once again, that's Marcus Kauke. Happy selling. Bye.